Welcome to Organized Crime and Punishment, the best spot in town to hang out and talk about history and crime, with your hosts, Steve and Mustache Chris. Hi, everyone. If you've been injured in an accident that was not your fault, listen up. We have legal professionals standing by to answer your questions for free. Call now and find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Call 800-218-6010. I'm here with spokesman John Wolf. So, John, tell everyone listening who should call right now. Well, Maria, first off, thank you for having me here. It's always nice to answer the listeners' questions. Now, as far as who should call in... Anyone who's been injured in an accident and think you deserve compensation, give us a call right now. 800-218-6010. You'll find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Thanks, John. You heard it, folks. Take advantage of this opportunity and call now. 800-218-6010. Advertisement sponsored by Legal Help Center may not be available in all states. All right, guys, we have something really special on hand for you in this episode. And then for a couple of future episodes, we are going to really delve deeply into Murder, Inc. And the Murder, Inc. is just an fascinating subject and a fascinating piece of the the early, early modern, you might say, iteration of the mafia and it really stretched over the the early formation of the mafia and then into the mafia that we know today the commission-based system chris maybe you can just start us off today and tell us a little bit about overall murdering yeah just to kind of like quickly break it down like murder inc was the enforcement wing the murder wing to put it bluntly of the uh, national crime syndicate and ran from uh 1929 to 1941 um it's up for a debate like how many murders the murder inc was actually responsible for some people put it in the thousands some people put it in the hundreds you know one thing we do know for sure though that like the murders spanned across the entire united states um yeah murder inc was like mainly it was like mainly kind of composed of like italian um street hoods jewish uh street hoods there were some irish people in there but it was mainly italians and it was like a joint effort between like jewish gang like jewish gangsters and italian gangsters really and um you know it, for my research like they called this thing like the national crime syndicate which was apparently was like the way they described it was like a loose alliance or like irish and italian and jewish gangs and even like some black gangs were part of the syndicate and then the idea was like they would all work out their differences between each other like within the syndicate and you know all kind of you know work out their problems and try to work towards the same goal i don't know i personally i think they just didn't really at the time they didn't really understand how the commission worked and like the national crime syndicate was kind of like a fill-in for i could be wrong about this but like the italian like the commission worked with other gangs too but the italians were at the top you know there was no disputing that it's not like they were equals um and the commission would moderate disputes between uh other gangs too especially like if it affected their business but you know for from the research i've done they called it the national crime syndicate so that's what we're going to call it yeah, I really get from from 
the discussions that we've had and that the the research that I've looked into that it definitely was that either the National Crime Syndicate was like you said, a misunderstanding of what the commission was really about, or maybe it was a proto version of the commission and the, it, that it eventually, I guess you might say it's slowly turned into the commission. But I, I get the sense that this whole idea of the national crime syndicate is more media inspired than it was of an actual thing. Well, even, yeah, even the name Murder Inc. was like that was created by the media. They didn't, uh, they didn't call it murdering. I believe it was it was called the combination is really what it was called. Um, but yeah, I, I think it's something that like the media kind of came up with. And I mean, to a degree, they kind of got it right. But I mean, Italians and like the Italians and Jews weren't on equal footing. Like the Italians were firmly on top. Um, like we'll get into it. There was a lot of Jews that were like high ranking within the organized like crime world right but the italians came first and jews were kind of were second really whenever they talk about the national crime syndicate it sounds like they're trying to say that this was a uh like a a, a mega super group or something of of gangland people and i don't i think that it was luciano running the program with key supporters like meyer lansky he was almost it seemed like his conciliary or chief advisor but it really was it was the italian mafia gangs that were running the show but they had these spin-offs of certain jewish gangs certain jewish um independent contractors you might call them and even italians and like you said irish but it was it was essentially the core of what would become the commission as instituted by uh, lucky luciano and get into kind of the de- like you know a little bit of the details or what have you like you know if a jewish guy was having a problem with a made italian guy because you know people were getting made at this point like the made italian guy isn't you know unless it was like some something really egregious they're, like they, they're gonna side with the italian guys uh like a hundred percent of the time you know like it's, i I don't know. It's not to belabor a point. I just, I just find it. I found that was a little interesting. The fact that, like you pointed out, I think it was kind of a media driven thing and they didn't really kind of understand how organized crime really functioned in New York at the time. They were kind of just chipping away at the edges. A big part of this episode is really to just set up the, the, the origin story of Murder Inc. And where did this whole idea, the group of hardcore assassins, essentially, where it came out of? And one of the real hotbeds of it is this section of the Brooklyn section, a neighborhood inside of a neighborhood, Brownsville. Can you tell us? what it was like to live in Brownsville in the 1920s and 1930s. Yeah. And writing the notes, I, I started realizing, I mean, you, you really can't uh, understand the murder Inc story and um, organized crime in New York, really without kind of understanding Brownsville. It's so integral to uh, why these guys became the way they became. So yeah, like the early history of Brownsville, and like much of New York history, can be traced back to the uh, the Dutch. It was not a nice part of uh, New York. It was like swampy and it was pretty far from like the central hub. The land was auctioned off to a man named Charles S. Uh, 
Brown in 1866. That's where it gets its name eventually, Brownsville. He actually particularly advertised uh, his new development to Jews living in lower Manhattan. We'll get into it in a little bit, but Brownsville was... uh, its nickname was Little Jerusalem soon after this. Yeah, so like by the 1980s, like Brownsville was kind of was used as like a dumping ground too, uh, for like that like the like glue from the factories and it just wasn't a very nice place to live. So it was like kind of advertised as, you know, come here, it's cheaper. At this point, the unions really hadn't gotten involved. So, like, this was a way for a lot of, like, uh, newly arrived immigrants to try to get away from, like, the struggles of trying to even get into the union. And it was uh, particularly advertised to newly arrived Eastern Europeans, but in particular, uh, Ashkenazi Jews coming from, uh, like, the Pale Settlement in Russia. And it's really interesting that it's not a, a, a it's billed as a slightly nicer place to live than the teeming tenements of lower Manhattan, which are at that time fairly as close to about hell on earth as you can get. The The population densities are through the absolute roof in lower Manhattan. A lot of the apartments are death traps if there's ever a fire. So you have a chance of living in a terrible place or a slightly less terrible place. So that gives these immigrants a place to at least try to stretch their wings a little bit and get the the slice of the American dream, I guess you might say, that they were really coming for. Yeah, but I mean, Brownsville wasn't, um, was still wasn't a very nice place to live either. We'll get into that in a little bit. Like you pointed out in like lower Manhattan, like they were living in like these like tenement housing, basically. Uh, we're like, you know, like a house, like a housing unit that maybe fit for two families. There was like six families fitting, uh, living in these places. It's, it's actually absolutely horrifying when you like see the pictures of these places and, um, just how people were living, you know, just honest people that were like just trying to struggle by and they're having to live in these conditions. It's, it's, you know, people complain about like modern inconveniences now. Like it's, it's crazy. Not, not that long ago, what our ancestors were living in. Uh, like a lot of these places didn't have indoor plumbing. Um, so which, which would mean like, you know, you know, your excess, you know, the stuff that comes out would just get thrown out windows or thrown out on the streets. And that leads to all different types of problems, obviously, like respiratory illnesses. And even like a lot of this work was like kind of dangerous work. So it was pretty easy to like cut yourself and, you know, just say you happen to fall and, you know, some muds mixed in with some, uh, you know, I can't sugarcoat some crap like literal crap you know the cut could get infected and it's not like these people had easy access to doctors um you know very easily it could go gangrenous you might have to lose the hand or you know you could die from it very easily steve here again with a quick word from our sponsors and then that's the that's another person who can't work to yeah. feed the family. And that really leads into that these places, these ethnic enclaves in places like New York, but it was in the cities all across the U.S. and Canada, became breeding grounds for criminality, honestly, because, I mean... It, it seems like it was a mixture of that the police didn't really know what to do 
it to police these neighborhoods and nobody really cared what went on in them. No, because a lot of like, a, you know, not to sound like, I don't know, like some commie or something like that, but it's the truth, though. Like a lot of these factory owners, it's like you pointed out, it's like, well, just get somebody new, you know, like they didn't really care. And, and you know, local officials didn't really care unless it started kind of spilling out into like different neighborhoods. But for the most part, they were able to kind of contain it in, you know, certain enclaves. And, you know, these people were just kind of dirt really you know like i came across like a crazy stat when researching a little bit just the history of brownsville like by 1910 66% of the residents were first generation immigrants and like 80% of those immigrants were from russia so there was mostly askenazi jews it was pretty much virtually a jewish neighborhood by 1910 um and that's like it actually Brownsville got like the nickname Little Jerusalem, and you know there's some pretty cool history to it too. Like the like the dense, it's not like this anymore, from my understanding. A lot of the Jews have obviously moved out. There's probably still some there, but most of them have moved out. But at the time, like they built like tons and tons of synagogues, and a lot of these synagogues are still there. A lot of them been converted into uh, churches, but there's still a couple of synagogues that date back to this uh, early uh, immigration. From my understanding, that, and that's maybe why these particular Jewish immigrants got along so well with Italians, uh, immigrants in these neighborhoods. A, they grew, they were living in pretty much in the same areas, in the same neighborhoods, and they really did have this very similar outlook that was very different from the established society in New York. They were southern europeans and eastern europeans and you see that conflict developing between southern and eastern europeans that were just flooding in as immigrants in the late 1800s early 1900s as opposed to the predominantly western european society that had predominated since really the early 1800s and the mass immigration of the irish had really upset that whole apple cart yeah, you know, like in American history, I, I mean, you talk to people nowadays and they have like this impression that like just like immigration is just, I don't know, it's just never stopped type thing. But it's not really reality. Like there was waves, right? Like America was founded as it was a very Anglo country. Yes, there was a lot of different groups, but it was like a very Anglo society. And then like that first wave of Irish and German, but a lot of it was Irish immigration coming in kind of it did change the country in a lot of ways. And then this, I guess you can call it like the second great wave of immigration of like Southern Italians and Ukrainians and uh, Ashkenazi Jews changed it fundamentally in another way. Let's get um, into the what is the origin story of murdering? Where do we start off with them? Outside of we've set sort of the milieu of what was going on in their in the neighborhoods and in the in the streets of New York. But what gets us to the, the beginning of actual Murder, Inc.? Yeah. So like the origins of Murder, Inc. can kind of they can be traced back to the uh, Bugs and Meyer gang. And the Bugs and Meyer gang was like a gang that was led by uh, Meyer Lansky. I'm sure your audience, uh, people listening to this probably know who Meyer Lansky is and Bugsy Siegel. Uh, they were both obviously Jewish. Uh, yeah, they met when they were teenagers. Uh, I, I read an interesting story. Apparently, it was they were playing I don't know, 
Meyer Lansky was there and Bugsy Siegel was there and they were playing some uh, some card game and it was illegal at the time to be playing on the streets and the cops were coming to break it up and uh, Bugsy Siegel had like a gun out and Meyer Lansky like knocked the gun out of his hand and threw it in the trash can um, and obviously that was the right thing to do because of you know brandishing a gun to a cop when you're a teenager is probably not a good idea and, and Apparently they argued for a bit and then they ended up striking like a, obviously a lifelong friendship. It's, I, I read that Bugsy was commonly given. So there was more than one Bugsy, Bugsy Moran. And there was a few other ones that Bugsy was uh, a nickname that somebody would get for being crazy. Yeah. Yeah. On it, there's a couple of Bugsies in the, as we go further along in the story, um, yeah, that that was one thing I learned too. I thought that was unique to Bugsy Siegel, but apparently it's not. It was just, you know, people who just had like a hothead temper would just fly off the wall or had like a crazy look on their face. I guess it was a saying, you know, oh, they're going Bugsy. They, the Bugsy and Bugsy and Meyer form up their gang, and it's pretty typical standard gang stuff at that time. A little protection, a little numbers, a little gambling, a little of this. How do Bugsy... Bugsy Siegel and Meyer Lansky move up in the criminal world. Yeah, like so they, yeah, when it was formed, it was kind of like, uh, I don't know, they'd lend themselves out to like, uh, you know, like a defensive organization or like a rat, like, you know, like if these gangs are giving you a hard time, hire us and we'll take care of it, right? You pay us and then we'll take care of those protection you know, racket sorts of protection things. Protection racket type thing, right? Like, you know, kind of how. I don't know, the gangs still run like this, really, you know, and nothing, it hasn't really changed all that much. Um, yeah, Bugs and Meyer would end up, uh, Bugsy Siegel and, um, and sorry, Meyer Lansky would end up, uh, doing work with, uh, Lucky Luciano and, uh, Frank Costello. And this is kind of how they start working with the Italian mafia, who were like the real power brokers in New York. Um, yeah, and they would specialize in like, uh, providing hitmen you know stealing trucks enforcement for gambling establishments and bars then they get involved with this guy joe adonis and he was certainly somebody who had a quite a high opinion of himself how does how do they get involved with joe adonis and man and tell us some background on joe adonis i think he's somebody that somebody who's at least familiar with the mafia has probably heard his name but he doesn't come up as one of your top tier guys yeah so the bugs and meyer gang was that kind of hired as uh was yeah it was frankly employed by joe donis and joe donis was like a head of a gang it was called the broadway gang which was like a it's like a massive gang they ran liquor basically in like the high-end area eras like uh areas uh during prohibition um yeah like you pointed out i think joe donis is kind of one of those people i don't know if he's been completely forgotten about but it's not you don't hear his name very often. It's not like Lucky Luciano. It's not like uh, Bugsy Siegel or Meyer Wolanski. I don't think they're going to be making a movie about uh, Joe Donis anytime soon. I think they'd make a cool movie, but I just don't think it's going to happen. Um, yeah, like he was a major player in like the early history of the mob, right? Especially in particular uh, bootlegging. Um, his actual name was uh, Joseph Anthony Do- Doto. That's a uh, that's I've never heard that before. No, that's a unique name. I was looking at it. I was like, that is, that's a one of a kind name, Dodo. (laughs) Um, 
Yeah, and he took like the the name Joe Adonis because he was I guess he was looking at himself in the mirror and he saw like he thought he looked like an Adonis, like he looked like a Greek god. I mean, he's not bad looking, but I pulled up a picture of him now and I'm like, yeah, he's not a bad looking guy. I mean, he's pretty. (laughs) He'd probably lose a couple pounds, but you know what I mean? Like, I don't know, but a Greek god. Yeah, it's a little (laughs) bit. I think there's a little uh, narcissism there, but I, I, how does he fit into the whole story where, where it's something we haven't gotten into this this whole series, but we will definitely get into it. The whole beginning of the the mafia with the Joe, the boss, Mazaria, and uh, where does he fit in with this whole with that whole situation? Oh, yeah. So Joe, the boss, he um he like he ran new york and he um lucky luciano was like working with him and this is during the castellamari war and joe the boss he he had feelings that lucky luciano wasn't uh being loyal or was gonna betray him so joe the boss thinking you know uh joe adonis was loyal went to him with the, a contract he's like hey you want to take out lucky luciano for me you, you know make some money you're gonna move up and Joe Adonis, uh, being loyal to his friend, Lucky Luciano, told uh, Lucky Luciano that uh, Joe the Boss was going to do this. And, uh, I mean, the rest is uh, history. Uh, Lucky Luciano ends up taking out uh, Joe the Boss based off the information that uh, uh, Joe Adonis gave him. He struck, basically, Joe Adonis gave him the information, and Lucky Luciano striked uh, first. Do you know did Joe Adonis live happily ever after? From my understanding, I be, he was at, I believe he was at at the Joe Masteria hit. Um, apparently, he was the one driving the car or something that was when they went in and killed Joe Masteria. And this is what I read. Apparently, he was like shaking. And Bugsy Siegel had to take a hand to the steering wheel or something like that. I, I could be getting that mixed up with another story. Yeah, but he ended up like running the the Broadway gang, which was like. You know, one of the most successful bootlegging gangs in American history, really. Uh, he would end up working with like Arnold Rothstein, who would encourage them to, you know, raise the quality of the liquor that they were bringing in, stop selling gut rot stuff. Uh, I'm not as familiar with these clubs, but like um, some of the, one of the clubs is the Stork Club. Another uh, club is called the Silver Slipper. Another club is called the 21 Club. What he ended up doing, too, is like Arnold Rothstein was, I guess he kind of saw that like prohibition wasn't going to last forever like joe donison i believe buying like a lot of real estate and, and and a lot of these clubs and ended up uh owning a lot of the real estate so when prohibition was over he was yeah he was fine then uh bugs and meyer what place did they have in the big castellamarese war oh yeah so they, they like they were working with like uh lucky luciano and um so at first they were fighting for Joe the boss, but then they ended up killing Joe the boss uh, and like kind of a double cross to put uh, Maranzano in power. But then they quickly turned on Maranzano too. And the Bugs and Meyer gang, uh, in particular Meyer Lansky, hired a bunch of uh, Jewish hitmen, um, one of them being Bugsy Siegel, another one being called Red Levine, another one... Uh, abraham weinberg and they dressed as irs agents and snuck into uh maranzano's office and you know killed him from 
think of Bugsy Siegel like stabbed him a bunch of times too. And like there was a great um I recently watched the Lansky movie with the uh, Harvey Keitel, and then there's a great scene that sh- depicts this uh hit on Maranzano. And uh, it's very well done. If you audience, it's a good movie. You should watch it. Uh, kind of get an idea of how this hit went down. Uh, that movie does a very good job of uh, depicting it. But I, I always kind of found it was a little funny that they dressed up as IRS agents. <laughs> but uh, you know, like it's funny. Like, oh, I'm going to kill you with taxes and all that. Like, where I'm actually going to kill you. <laughs> and, uh, they hired Jewish guys because uh, Maranzano didn't. Didn't hang out with Jewish people, so he didn't know who these guys were. Didn't he wouldn't have known any of their faces. That's two interesting things about Maranzano is that he had a huge blind side there that he didn't really know much about the Italians either. He was fairly recent immigrant to the the mafia scene in New York, and you can see that that difference between the mustache Pete's and the the street gangs the, the lucky luciano had his finger on the pulse of everything he wasn't going to get caught by a, a, any anybody trying to hit him like that he would have known all these guys maranzano who's aloof and thinks of himself as the julius caesar of the american mafia he didn't have his hands really dirty like that no, and like Marizano, like kind of put in perspective, like a lot of the, the what was the Castellamari gang was like you pointed out, like newly arrived immigrants from Sicily, and this was kickstarted by the rise of Benito Mussolini and fascism. That kind of made a point of cracking down on organized crime in southern Italy and Sicily. So a lot of these guys just fled and they went to the place where you know sicilians and italians were living which was in new york you know they brought like the organized crime with them um you know thinking you know they knew how to run it better than the people living in like like people like joe the boss and like the the american italians like oh they knew better like we're you know we're the ogs of la cosa nostra we're coming right from sicily right the other thing that I found was really interesting, I believe it was on that hit, and I don't remember which one of the guys it was, but he, he was an Orthodox Jew who was so observant he wouldn't do hits on the Sabbath. And I think that that is so fascinating. And Chris and Mustache Chris and I have done an episode on religion in the mafia, and it just blows my mind of how many of these, of how many of these, uh, gangsters were very religious, yet they're killing people, they're running drugs, prostitution, shakedowns, gambling, like every vice you can possibly think of they're into, yet they they don't see a problem with the fact that they're also quite religious. I believe the gang, I think it was Red Levine who was the guy that wouldn't do, I could be wrong about that. So if anybody in the audience knows, just correct me. But That's I the one was I was Red thinking, Levine. and I didn't want to go on the record on it. No, I believe it was Red <laughs> Levine that was the guy that wouldn't, he wouldn't do anything on the Sabbath, which is like you pointed out, it's really, it's really kind of bizarre. But like Meyer Lansky was, uh, I wouldn't say he was like religious or what have you, but he was, he was Jewish, right? Um, he didn't, tried to hide his jewishness or anything like that um he i believe would attend synagogue from time to time i believe he did read the read the torah um i wouldn't say he wasn't like a devout uh a devout jew or a devout orthodox uh jew but his jewishness was really 
was really important to him. And I'm sure there was a lot of temptation to try to, you know, downgrade it or kind of get rid of it, considering, you know, the people that were really running organized crime in New York, where he lived, um, were Italians and Catholic. Steve here again with a quick word from our sponsors. I, I think it overall, maybe the higher level of religiosity that it was just something that culturally people did. But I mean, that guy who was an observant Orthodox Jew who kept the Sabbath and everything from everything that I've seen and read that he was very serious about it. Uh, and I think that that it's it's so incongruent, but it's fascinating. Let's wrap up today with a few final thoughts. Uh, just to put a final point, Lucky Luciano, we've talked about this many, many times. Lucky Luciano winds up kind of becoming the king of the hill after Joe the Boss Mazzaria's dead and then Maranzano's dead. He sets up this thing that at least they called at the time the National Crime Syndicate with Meyer Lansky. And it becomes the proto-commission. But what are some of your final thoughts as we move on, just for people to keep in their heads that there's this this idea of the five families, the commission, of a really more formalized mafia structure? How does Murder, Inc. fit into this? It was actually like it was Bugsy Siegel and Meyer Lansky that really kind of pushed for a formation of like an enforcement wing for this the newly formed National Crime Syndicate. Um, you know, just kind of like my takeaways from it. It's I always find it really funny when people talk about Meyer Lansky and they say, you know, he's kind of like just like the brainiac and he's like the you know, he's the guy that's like crunching the numbers. He's like the human calculator. Reality was like Meyer Lansky was just as ruthless as all these other guys. It's something that I don't know why it seems to kind of get left out. Um, and even Bugsy Siegel. I know there was that movie Bugsy that kind of presents uh, Bugsy Siegel's like, yeah, he's a little bit crazy, but he's kind of like a fun loving type of crazy. No, Bugsy Siegel was like a stone cold psychopath, like even cops at the time talked about uh you know like some of these guys would kill and it would just kind of be work where it was like bugsy siegel enjoyed like hurting people enjoyed torturing people um i thought that was like uh in this initial research it's it's quite remarkable how this has all kind of been kind of forgotten i don't know what's your opinion i agree with that the movie bugsy maybe lansky and bugsy those two movies will talk about in the future especially if that's something that people are interested in but that movie did portray bugsy siegel as sort of a fun-loving little crazy yeah sure a gangster but uh more of the romantic version of the gangster and i think i don't like those movies these guys are not romantic there's interesting elements to it and there is a a kind of a cool factor but they're still criminal murderers who are into the they're they're hurting regular people and i think to we can go into a way of putting them up on a pedestal that we shouldn't put them on yeah for sure you know and even lucky luciano to a degree he kind of gets uh this reputation as like oh he was like the brains of the operation type thing like he was the one that was able to like organize this all together and he was like the smart guy and I mean, he was all those things. He was really a smart guy, but like Lucky Luciano and with Meyer Lansky and Bugsy Siegel really pushed for what eventually would be nicknamed 
Murder Incorporated, which was responsible for, you know, it could be upwards to thousands of deaths. I will say, though, that as, as me personally, I love studying organizations and how they develop. It was genius in a way of how they set up the, the commission and putting checks and balances that the gangs, the five families wouldn't constantly be fighting it out with each other, that to put out hits on other gang, on other members of other families, you had to go through this process. They had these sit downs and everybody had buy-in in it. it. It took a long time before people really broke the system. I mean, you could almost argue, I mean, I, you could give us some examples, but John Gotti was the one of the big ones to break the system. The, the, and the, there was a couple of others along the way, but people really generally respected the system. And if they did buck the system, they paid for it. Yeah. You know, like the, like the invention of something like murder rank, it just, it does make sense, right? Where you hired like a cadre of hitman really that, you know, had like, we'll get into the details of how it ran, but there was like layers and layers and layers and layers of like protection from the guys at the very top who were kind of, you know, giving the final say of what to do and what not to do. Um, it's not like people in the National Crime Syndicate can go like, oh, somebody robbed my casino, which was illegal, you know, or, you know, so-and-so is going to go talk to the cops. You can't go to the court and be like, you know, like this guy, this guy's going to rat or this guy's going to be informant, but like he's actually this and, you know, like this guy robbed my casino or this guy stole my heroin. Like you need an enforcement wing of it. And I mean, that's kind of how in reality this is kind of how the police force works and the courts work in our country right it's not much different really without you know without the threat of violence that the whole thing doesn't really work so it makes sense for something like the national crime syndicate to come up with a system like murder inc where like okay if you're not going to follow the rules or you're going to break the rules, or you're going to jeopardize everybody's uh, livelihoods because you're going to talk, or you're going to steal, or you're going to do this, or you're going to do that. You're going to have to answer to this, and it's nicknamed Murder Incorporated. You know, it kind of has like a way of making sure that people don't do those types of things. And I mean, really, at the end of the day, the one of the big reasons why people don't commit crimes is the threat of violence, right? It's either, you know, the cops like shaking you down or beating you up or stopping you. But at the threat of violence can be, take many different forms. In the case of Murder Inc., it's literally murdering you. Where in the case of the state, it could potentially mean 10 years in jail, you know, and everybody kind of knows what goes on in these jails, right? They're not nice places. Well, and if we're going to go there, we might as well talk about it, that the state in the post-Westphalian system that we live in has the monopoly of violence. These people in the mafia are living in this gray zone outside of the state. And so they formed their own monopoly of violence and it worked pretty well. And it's it tamped down a lot of the chaos that could have happened in it. I think I would wonder what you would say. Uh, to me, it seemed like it it enclosed the the chaos. You had the Colombo family that was chaos constantly, but it never really blew up outside of the Colombo family. It stayed inside. Problems that were inside of families stayed inside of families, and it didn't cause these massive wars. 
interfamily yeah, that, wars. That's exactly like why the commission came about was they didn't want this stuff spilling out on the streets. I mean, we're going to get into it, like kind of like early history of like some of the uh, key members of Murder Inc., like Lepke Bulk. Uh, Lepke and uh, you know, Jacob Shapiro and like, Happy My Own and, you know, Abe Rellis. And you kind of look at like the early history of a lot of these guys, like the violence was spilling out on the streets quite frequently, you know, like literally like kind of think like Gangs New York, like that amazing opening fight scene. But they're not like using knives, like they're using guns and shooting each other in the middle of the street. Right. And, uh, you know, it's just not. It's just not good for business, right? And that's why it came about, like, the commission came about, like, and it also to, like, kind of regulate themselves, but also to, like, regulate other gangs, too, where, like, if you were doing business, like, like that's fine. You can do business. You have to pay a tax or what have you. But, like, if you start doing your business in the sense that, like, you know, you and some other opposing gang and the, the violence starts breaking it on the streets, it's like, oh, no, now that's starting to affect the commission, which is the you know, the superpower, I guess, of all of the organized crime. And once you start affecting the commission, you're going to have to answer the limb and they have their own means of taking care of this stuff. So it would regulate even those gangs on the streets because they didn't want to have to deal with, you know, the full power of the commission coming down on them. We're going to put we're going to put a pin in it, so to speak, here. There's going to be much, much more about Murder, Inc. in future episodes. So definitely get tuned in. We're going to talk about the further development of Murder, Inc., and then their ultimate downfall. So if anybody wants to get in contact with us or has some comments or feedback, I know Mustache Chris and I would love to hear it from you. You can reach us at the email address, crime at a2zhistorypage.com. Search us up on social media. Find all of it in the show notes. The biggest thing you can do for us is if you're enjoying what you hear, Tell a friend, tell a couple of friends about the podcast so that they can become friends of ours. Yeah, yeah, just tell your friends, guys, because, I mean, by the by the time that we're done doing this Murder, Inc. Uh, thing, I mean, the, it's pretty crazy. We did a whole episode and haven't even really touched on Murder, Inc. yet. <laughs> you know, like we touched on Joe Donis. He'll, he comes back into the story, too. We touched on, like, the history of Brownsville and um, Meyer Lansky and Bugsy Siegel. They're going to, obviously, they're involved in this story too all right and keep your keep your podcatchers updated and we will talk to you next time forget about it you've been listening to organized crime and punishment a history and crime podcast to learn more about what you heard today find links to social media and how to support the show go to our website a to z history Become a friend of ours by sending us an email to crime at a to z history page.com. All of this and more can be found in the show notes. We'll see you next time on Organized Crime and Punishment. Forget about it. The Historical Jesus Podcast is the sweeping saga of the life and times of Galilean Jesus of Nazareth, as well as the faith, religion, and church founded to honor and disseminate his acts and teachings. 
Join me, Mark Vinette, on this fascinating journey through time, exploring the many great works of Christian theology, literature, architecture, music, and art inspired by the words and deeds of Jesus Christ.